1: Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast. This is the Prospect Handbook podcast sponsored by DraftDay.com. DraftDay.com is a new concept that offers short-term or daily fantasy sports games for real money. The concept is simple. You pick the day you want to play instead of fantasy lineup. If your picks perform well that day, you win. You can play for free or real money, and they award cold, hard cash nightly to the top-performing players. They've already awarded more than $10 million, and it's completely legal to play. DraftDay.com also has a new rapid-fire game that takes one minute to play with huge payouts. Just pick between a few choices of players and choose the ones that will score the most points. It's that easy. All you need is three of five correct to double your money. Draft Day is offering a special offer to Baseball America listeners, so be sure to head to DraftDay.com and enter the promo code BAPODCAST, and that'll start you off with a free instant cash bonus. If you like free money, head to DraftDay.com and use promo code BAPODCAST want to remind everybody that you can also order the Baseball America books, the ultimate 2013 Baseball America reference books, are now available. Get your copies while supplies last. Choose among the Prospect Handbook, the Almanac, the Directory, the Draft Almanac, the Super Register, and of course, our Hall of Fame Register. You visit BaseballAmerica.com backslash store. Start ordering your books today. It's book season. First of all, it's prospect season, then book season, then, then after that is Wabbit season, of course, so that's how things go at Baseball America. Then, of course, baseball season again, so... Uh, but right now, uh, I'm John Manuel, he's Matt Eddy, and we're here to talk about our league top 20 prospects, kind of those already in full swing, Matt. We could talk a little bit about the short season leagues that are already up. I think it's, it might be the first time, Matt, ever that you've done a league top 20 and one of them has not been a short season league.
2: Is that mm. probably correct, isn't it? Uh, I think it's the second time. I, I did both triple A's in 07, as I recall.
1: Okay, I do remember that.
2: At, um and that was I, quick, desa- I quickly retraced my steps.
1: That's right, exactly. You're like, wait a minute. These leagues aren't nearly as fun. If only you knew that you could have a five star league and a four star AAA league this year. Um, as usual, we'll take your questions. You can email us at podcast at baseballamerica.com. I've gotten several suggestions at podcast at baseballamerica.com recently. Not as many so much on the questions for the podcast, but people who are listening have podcast suggestions, which we appreciate. And of course, you can follow us both on Twitter. He's at Maddie, Matt Eddie BA. M-A-T-T-E-D-D-Y-B-A. I'm at John Manuel B-A. And, uh, Matt, first, the, the news of the day. Kind of just to touch on this briefly. As you said, in the pre-show meeting, such as it is, um, this isn't what people come to Baseball America for, uh, is news about Bud Selig. But Bud, Bud Selig did uh, announce his retirement today, Thursday, as we record this. And I don't, I don't think, you know, I, th- I think we'd, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the head of the sport you know, the commissioner of Major League Baseball and the guy who's been the commissioner of Major League Baseball for more than 20 years now, I, I think that him passing from the stage imminently is big news and it is going to change the game because he's changed the game so significantly in his tenure. Um, what, what's a, uh, your, your quick take on Bud Celia? Which of his changes, because he's really changed the game a lot, which change do you like the most or which change do you like the least?
2: Uh, you know, being a baseball fan, I'm, you know, I'm hardwired to be uh, resistant to change. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I've grown to like the expanded playoff format.
1: Yeah, the, I, the wild card like, race I like is th- good.
2: Yeah, I, I like a month of playoff baseball. I think that's just the right amount. Uh, you can argue the length of the regular season if you want. But right. But the month of playoffs is just right. Uh, my least favorite is uh, interleague. I, th- yeah. I think that was kind of a novelty, kind of fun, you know, 15 years ago. But now it's just just all about the gate draw, and that's really been the, the prime objective
1: every throughout
2: Culex's tenure.
1: Every day interleague, especially, has been in my mind has fallen flat this year. Yeah. I'm really not a fan of every day interleague. I'm not a fan of here the last week of the season. You know, Todd Helton plays his final regular season game at Coors Field, and it's against the Red Sox. <laughs> you know, I don't like the fact that. It's the last week of the regular – last weekend or second to last weekend, and the Giants and Yankees are playing. Right. And they're both out of it. That should be a showcase game. Mm. You figure coming into the year, that's why it got the Fox hole, all that kind of – the TV hole. Yep. And instead – that's why there are lots of Giants fans who were there. But instead you had a meaningless game uh, between kind of two has-been kind of rosters, especially the Yankees this year. So um, it was just kind of – I think every day – Interleague has really fallen flat. The one positive, of course, from Interleague Play, besides the gate draw, was the horrible logo that uh, was so bad that it was good. It was like the roadhouse of logos. I don't know if you remember the Interleague logo, but it's the two eagles from the two league logos fighting over a baseball. I mean, that is just... (laughs) That just pegs the unintentional comedy meter. So I'm a big fan. So Interleague Play at least gave us that. Um, I guess the more recent... That's one of the most recent changes, but, you know, the the draft changes the, from the Baseball America standpoint. You know, Bud Selig was a big driver of, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf was in his ear a lot. He wasn't you know, he wasn't a puppet master, as he was portrayed maybe 15 years ago. But I do think Jerry Reinsdorf was always very influential on Bud Selig. And Jerry Reinsdorf never believed in paying people a lot in the draft. And the White Sox never went up to, they never paid full slot until this year, until the new CBA, the last two years. So um, this new CBA with these pretty hard caps with significant stringent penalties if you go over the cap, um, and that really rewards bad teams. I think, as we always say on these podcasts, whenever we've talked about the draft, draft rules have unintended consequences. Every time MLB has tried to limit bonuses, there have been unintended consequences. And there hasn't been an unintended consequence in terms of you know teams finding ways around it. That hasn't happened yet. Those hard caps have stayed in place, and they have limited bonus inflation. But you have this unintended consequence of teams tanking. And there's no question in my mind that what the, the Astros did this year qualifies as tanking. When you have no people watching their games, uh, you see what they've done to the market in Houston, and I think it's going to be difficult for them to get that market back. And I think it, they are rebuilding very well, Matt. But look at a playoff team like Cleveland that traded away Cliff Lee and CC Sabathia and is in a baseball town, has a nice ballpark, has a pretty exciting, fun team this year, and nobody's watching. And that's going to happen probably the first year that Houston's good under this new uh, front office because they really kind of napalmed that market with three straight 106-loss seasons, one of them probably unintentional, but the last two have been pretty intentional. I, I understand why they've done it. But they're going to be, as they said, and as Eddie Murphy said in Life, consequences and repercussions.
2: Aren't they the first team since the expansion Mets to lose 106? They are plus in three straight S- years. 62
1: to 65 Mets lost. That's not a good.
2: That's not good company to keep. It's really not.
1: Um, you know, and maybe, and I don't see a Tom Seaver. Maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe that's Carlos Rodon. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, so there are unintended consequences of pretty much a lot of the things that Bud Selig has done. But the intended consequence, I think, as you said, was to make more money mm-hmm. for his employers, which were the owners, and he has done a he's tremendous done job of that. Excellent job of that. So I think he's uh, going to go down in history. Um, you know, obviously we haven't even touched on the PED and issue, testing, yeah. which I think you know I think that more of that responsibility needs to fall on the union to me than on Bud Selig. But uh, that's just my opinion. Uh, I think we've seen a change, a change in baseball's PED uh, situation has really come from the player's attitude, not from ownership. So uh, to me, that's where the change has actually been affected. So I, I really put more fault on, if you want to say that it, someone's to blame for baseball's PED culture being very lax in the 90s, I would say the union would come in first for that, then ownership. But, uh, but So I, I don't hold Selig as responsible for that as I hold Don Fear, but I don't think that is an opinion that's shared by the majority out there. Um, but the, while we t- the, the actual reason you don't have any more Seelig any uh, juice, do you? Uh, we're going to switch from Seelig juice to Prospect juice. I <laughs> that's what pe- people Good come trade. here for anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think we win on that one. But um, we've already got four leagues right. down, 12 yet to go, Matt. But uh, we, we've started off with the rookie leagues, and y- you've done a lot of rookie league prospect lists over the years. Since so These are actually out at BaseballAmerica.com. Let's talk a little bit about these, and then we'll talk a little bit about the process that we, you've used over the years to do Appy League and then kind of differences that we do when we do full season league. But uh, two of our four leagues so far done by the indefatigable um, Bill Mitchell, a uh, correspondent out in Arizona, and uh, was emailing me about going to Pioneer League games all the time. And I was yeah. like, hey, if you're going to Grand Junction, you want to do the Pioneer League, knock yourself out. And he was like, I absolutely want to do the Pioneer <laughs> League. So Bill did the Pioneer League for us and the Arizona League. Um, anything jump out on these lists for you, uh, Matt? Uh, the, the both all these leagues, uh, as usual, uh, they vary very much from. It really kind of depends on the organization, but it feels like rookie leagues are a lot more interesting the last two years, thanks to the draft signing deadline. Yes, yes.
2: And, and the Gulf Coast League is is exactly the example of this. We have two pirates, you know, top top half of the first round picks, plus you know probably the top high school talent from the previous draft, and Lucas Giolito. Yep. It's just a really, really strong group.
1: Yeah, Giolito started off the year uh, on our high school top 100 at number one with some guy named Buxton number two. I mean, if Mm -hmm. he's healthy, Lucas Giolito, the scouting reports on him are ridiculous.
2: Yeah, and his his post-TJ reports.
1: His post-Tommy John reports are fantastic from the Gulf Coast League. I mean, Ben Badler had him basically 93 to 96 touching a lot of eights and some uh, occasional hundreds with an 83 to 86-mile-an-hour curveball. That's what Lucas Giolito was before surgery, and that's what he's been post surgery. And you know, a lot of players who were drafted in that teens area right now, from in the 2012 draft, are going to have to be pretty good for their teams, not to always for their beat writer, not to always write about. You know, they could have had Michael Walker with this pick. Mm-hmm. You know, he's almost like the Mike Trout of that draft. It's like, how did this guy get to 19? Yep. And Lucas Giolito was three spots ahead of Waka, and and the reports out of Washington are. The Nationals were set to draft WACA at sixteen, and then they realized that Giolito was going to get to them, hmm. and they took Giolito instead. So, um, but that was a loaded list. Uh, it man. really
2: was, yeah. Especially when you contrast it with the Arizona League, which is its contemporary, its sister league, right? And um, sister. And, and you have two two first rounders at the top, but then, you know, you get. uh, uh Giolito versus Arroyo. That's a great. I mean, like that just
1: tells you right there. My, Meadows versus Frazier was a debate all spring in Georgia, in Loganville, which is. I think it's just some perfect symmetry. Mm-hmm. Somewhere Nathan Rody and Connor Glass are smiling that Frazier is number one in one league and Meadows is the number one in the other league. Yep. But then you go from Christian Arroyo, who we underrated in the draft. I will plead guilty on that one. I had Florida. I was light on him. Guy can hit. Just because he doesn't profile at shortstop doesn't mean he should have been 102. In our draft rankings, I was light on Christian Arroyo. Guy can hit. I've had this discussion with John Barr. So, um, <laughs> and with John Castleberry, one of their national cross-checkers. They were both fun. John, John, As usual, John Barr smiled a whole lot more than John Castleberry. That's just the way John is. Castleberry, I mean. Um, but uh, Arroyo versus Giolito, I think 30 out of 30 organizations are going to take Giolito. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's 27. But Giolito, I think, is considered the better prospect. Reese McGuire versus Frenchie Cordero. Frenchie Cordero is pretty interesting, but Reese McGuire is the best high school catcher in this draft. Dominic Smith, a pure B. hit. Uh, Franklin Barreto, the, the highest-paid Latin American signee in the class of 2012. Uh, you know, J.P. Crawford at six. Yeah. The sixth-ranked prospect in the uh, GCL, won the batting title and can play shortstop. And that's a that's usually a one. That's a number one prospect profile. And then Lewis Thorpe is the guy who's gained 50 pounds since signing for the Twins and is that was a pretty intriguing scouting report in and of itself, I mean, 91 mm-hmm. to 96 from the left side with real physicality. That was just a very exciting top ten, man. That, that GCL really impressed me. was just short of being a five-star league. Just short. Didn't, didn't quite make it there. But you were talking about Travis Demerit for a second as well.
2: Yeah, just contrasting the level of first-round talent in the Arizona League. Frazier, Arroyo, then it goes to Demerit and McKinney. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty big drop-off when, when, when you compare it with the GCL.
1: Yeah, when you're, t- when you're Meadows, McGuire, Smith, Crawford, even Rob Kaminsky. Rob Kaminsky is more like a Arizona League top ten guy. than he is a GCL top ten guy back of the first round. Um, did you find it interesting? A t- couple things about the GCL, Matt. To me, the Arizona League is the better of these two leagues, not in terms of talent this year, but I think it's more of a true test because a it's such an offensive league, so I think it does test. I think it does test pitchers. Um, and b, the GCL is basically instructs to an extreme degree with this crazy schedule where a couple of the divisions a couple of the divisions out there only play three other teams, right Like the East Coast teams, uh, the, I guess it's the Nationals, the Marlins, the Mets, and the cardinals mm-hmm. that's a division, and that's all you play. So where the nationals went forty nine and nine, the GCL nationals, they only played three other teams oh. the whole year. They played all their games against the Mets, Marlins, and Cardinals. So it was like, whatever <laughs> the order was, it would be Mets, it would be Cardinals, Marlins, Mets, Cardinals, Marlins, Mets. Repeat.
2: Well, if the C League was commissioner of the DCL. He would have interleague. <laughs> That's <laughs> right,
1: absolutely. The West Coast fans of Florida must see the East Coast fans, <laughs> as the scout told me. The East Coast of Florida, the East Coast. So, um, but th- th- there were a bit. There was a big difference to me in those two leagues. The other thing that stuck out was. The preponderance of Yankees on the, in the GCL back half, list.
2: Yeah, a
1: lot six Yankees in the top 20. But in a way, that's just natural because they had two teams. two teams. What was your opinion on the Yankees having two teams in the GCL? I mean, I guess it's really not that big of a deal, but it further cheapens the GCL to I me. Mean, it really
2: doesn't feel like a real league. Yeah, and why don't they just have a traveling rookie team if if they wanted a s- like a co-op second team. Yeah, you know.
1: Or put it. I like guess it's hard to get
2: in the Appy League.
1: Or yeah, or spend a little money and be in the Apple League. Exactly. Well, I, I don't. I don't get that one. Um, and, and and it was very difficult. Actually, there are cut. You know, the Yankees have two. They have two or three shortstops in the top they had ten. two. Two shortstops: Abital, Avellino, and Thyro Estrada. It. It'll be a two-two from to Estrada. But so Thyro Estrada. Was you, you could just tell that Avelino was thought of more than Estrada, because when Avelino was on Yankees one, and then they moved him to Yankees two where Estrada was, Estrada slid to second and Avelino played short. So that was a pretty easy call of which one to rank higher. And you know, I there are other factors as well, but uh, that that was a good tell that they like Avelino better. But they also had Goske Cato, their second round pick this year, second baseman. So three middle infielders from the Yankees. You don't have three middle infielders from one organization t- in in a league top twenty, but when you have two teams, you could do that. So a little a little a little cheat. Uh, they're kind of like the yeah. cheat of this league with their uh, with two teams in the league. I wasn't sure yeah. uh, I Wasn't sure if you had a, an opinion on the Yankees or not, Matt. But
2: I uh, I well, we see a similar phenomenon in the Appy with the Blue Jays, especially you're right. uh, when you factor in the international flavor.
1: And the Blue Jays have spent heavily. Uh, right. The last couple of years, internationally, they had extra picks last year in the draft, kind of had a bonanza. And it reflected in the, well, I guess it reflected in a couple of ways, their strength um, at the lower levels. Five prospects in the Appy League's top 20. Uh, they had a good competitive team. there, And they won the Northwest League for the third straight year. And a lot of 2011 and 2012 draft picks from Toronto on that, uh, in, in that Vancouver team as well. Um, yeah, you're, you're an Appy League devotee. I think constant listeners or readers of Baseball America know that. What was your take on the Appy League this year? I know you consulted a lot with Clint Longenecker on
2: putting this list together. Yeah, I thought he did a good job with this list in identifying, uh, you know, the players who kind of have um, room room to fall down the defensive spectrum. Right. You're looking for shortstops. You're looking for, you know, third basemen who profile. Yep. Because they can shift to the corner. I'll be able to go first base, um, center fielders. Yep. You know, with pitchers, you make sure they have. You know, Clint, uh, a phrase that Clint used a lot was, uh, "He has a starter's body." Yeah, and that's a good way to approach these rankings. You know, make sure uh, the right-handed starters have enough room to grow out, and that they're not maxed out now and essentially as good as they ever will be in rookie ball. That's what you want to avoid.
1: I'm looking at you, Angel Mata. That was a guy <laughs> I fell for in Appy League last year. Something must have happened with Angel Mata. Remember, you we saw him in that playoff game. He got yeah. released.
2: He got released. He yeah. must have
1: gotten hurt. You know, he pitched winter ball. He must have got hurt, because not only did he get released, he hasn't been picked up by anybody else. I haven't
2: even seen him in Indy ball. Yeah, and, and the injury must have been a situation where he was going against the club's wishes. Right. right. Usually they, they rehab you. Exactly. Especially if they invest money in you.
1: Now, I will say that last year he was a very split camp guy in the twin system, and I definitely picked up that vibe last year right. on him. And then he made it basically based on the last guy I talked to, did like him, was pretty strident about him, Talked about how we need power arm. This guy does throw hard. We'd see him in the Appy League playoff game that we went to. The epic Appy League playoff game that I'll never stop talking about. Mostly because it was Byron Buxton. Yeah. And he was so Leading electric. Off. Yeah. We, I mean, that team was just prospect late bunting, stealing bases. I mean, like 3-9 to first. Was awesome. He was awesome. He was explosive. It was a taste of things to come. Um, but I like this Appy League list. And one of the more intriguing things about it to me is Tyler Danish and Victor Caratini, (laughs) two of the 2013 draft guys were in there. Danish is fascinating because he's basically going to have to beat Jake Peavy. And the tempo is so fast. He's just, like, pitches with his hair on fire. It's a very high-energy delivery. The arm slot is really low. And he was the best high school player in the state of Florida this year. This guy almost won our High School Player of the Year award.
2: Oh, wow.
1: You know, I don't even remember who our High School Player of the Year was. I just know that Tyler Danish... Was a finalist? Who was our high school player of the year? I couldn't tell you. I'm the editor in chief of Baseball Austin, America. You know.
2: <laughs> one I think it was these guys we're looking at here. I think it was Clint Fraser. Fraser, uh, yeah, definitely I think Frazier. it was
1: Clint Fraser. So. Yeah, but but Tyler Danish. Uh, when you read his report, we that was that a report? And we edited every, all 16. Matt and I are the only people who saw all 16 lists. Matt, was that a guy where you write a report and we moved him down after reading it, or where we moved him up after we read it?
2: The one thing that gave me a lot of confidence. Is the organization he's with? This they they take unconventional pitchers. They being the White Sox. Yeah. Chris Sale, Dan Hudson. I mean, two guys who were not consensus guys, at least in terms of their delivery. Dan Sale was obviously a, a first rounder. But
1: Daniel Hudson is a perfect example because it's a low
2: slot right hander. And two Tommy John's later. Yeah, uh, but he did. He, d- <laughs> he uh, still had
1: value. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he had value for sure. I mean, he was a good big league pitcher when he was healthy. Mm-hmm. But Tyler Danish kind of comes out of that same slot. Exactly. So that, that that gives me confidence also in Tyler Danish and just the fact that he was just...
2: Uh,
1: I think that's a guy who could move very, very quickly. And in the Appy League, uh, getting that asterisk, you know, <laughs> anybody mm-hmm. who gets to the big leagues is a win in that. It gets him from the Appy League to the big leagues. And then Caratini, that was a guy, Matt, we really had a hard time coming up with a comp for. Mm-hmm. Switch hitting catcher, well, third baseman presently being converted to catcher and instructs, and you're trying to find a comparable player for that guy in the big leagues, and yet the scouting report is he he can hit, and he really performed in that league with a lot of gap power and present hitting ability.
2: Mm-hmm. Does he... Somebody who comes to mind is maybe Grandal. Is he a Yasmani Grandal kind of player?
1: Yeah, you know, switch hitting catcher,
2: yeah. Without big-time power, but Good I think that's position. fair.
1: He probably he probably will have less power than was projected for Grandal, but yeah, they're, I mean like Carlos Santana, you know, if you want to
2: dream big, Santana also a former conf- former third baseman.
1: I like that comparison that you came up with because he he does have that infield past and is similarly not that big, so Carlos Santana had to have the big power for you, not the plate catcher, and he's hit enough offensively. I just think it's fascinating that the Indians. You know, <laughs> Ryan Garko's on the brain lately because he's now the assistant coach at Stanford. But Ryan Garko was the first baseman on their 2007 playoff team because they yeah. didn't have anybody else, and he hit 20 home runs. I and mean, When you have Sizemore and Peralta hitting with the power they hit for, you don't necessarily need a profile first baseman. And it's just weird, the the... the the Indians can't find a profile first baseman. Yeah. Uh, they trade, tried to trade for one in Matt Laporta, yep. and he didn't hit for enough. They had Garko. Was not a profile guy? Try
2: to draft him, Bo Mills.
1: Absolutely. And now they don't have a profile first baseman again because it's right now it's five foot eleven Carlos Santana. So hmm. it's just odd. I, I think part of it is there aren't that many profile first basemen, but there aren't too many teams that have drafted more first basemen. <laughs> Michael Aubrey <laughs> was there for yeah, a draft yeah. pick, Bo Mills. They drafted Stephen Head in the second round. They nope.
2: drafted a lot of first basemen. high. Oh, how they've tried.
1: They've tried to draft. They have tried to acquire a profile first baseman, and they have failed. But they do have a good first baseman right now, Carlos Santana. Although I, I don't think the glove is uh, what you're looking for. But Caratini, doesn't sound like the Braves want him to play first base. He was drafted as a catcher out of Miami-Dade J.C., and he really hit in that league. Um, and then, you know, Matt, you do the Mets top 30. Um Ahmed Rosario was at the back of the top thirty last year, so there were expectations for this guy. Mm-hmm. He's really a projection pick as the number one prospect in this league. Still a lot to project. It sounds like with Ahmed Rosario, but what's the what's the best case scenario for Ahmed Rosario?
2: Oh, the Mets love this guy. Like you know, you get them talking on him, and they can go for ten minutes. You know, it's 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 the makeup. It's you know the work ethic. So. Th- they think that even though the, the knee-jerk reaction when you see a bigger shortstop is he's going to move. You know, Manny, right. Manny Machado, Xander Bogarts, they're going to move. They're too right. big. But with him, you know, that work ethic is, could be a separator, putting the work in to stay at shortstop. Um, he's a bigger guy, and obviously you're hoping for a 50-55 you know, hitter and maybe 50 glove.
1: I was stunned to read that he has the largest international signing bonus in in, their, in that
2: franchise's history. That was that all blew me
1: away. Of all teams, it didn't look like they'd ever sign an international guy to a million dollars before Ahmed Rosario. So that really blew me away. An organization that had a, a, the first Latin American general manager, if I'm not mistaken, you know, and wasn't he the first Latin American general so. manager? A team that had Sandy uh, Sandy Johnson in its employee, a uh, guy who had signed. You know, Help sign Sandy, Sammy Sosa and Juan Gonzalez and all that in his time in Texas, Pudge Rodriguez. Um, I'm not sure he signed all three of those guys for the Rangers, but I know he was very involved in their Latin program when they signed those players. Um, it just stunned me that Ahmed Rosario.
2: More than Fernando Martinez?
1: Yeah, more than Dealless War. More than Dealless <laughs> <laughs> I guess Guerra is Warrior. More it? than. That's Fran- Guerrero.
2: More than Francisco uh, Pena? Pena's son. <laughs> wow, I Juan forgot Urbina. about that guy. Uged Urbina's son. Yep. I completely forgot about Francisco Pena. He's still in the system.
1: Even more than Juan Lagaris. <laughs> so the infamous Juan Ligaris. But, yeah, that was a that was league top prospect list that stood out to both of us for its depth. I'm a big DJ Davis fan. He's very exciting. Got some Carl Crawford comps in that yeah, league.
2: Yeah, that one made sense. I, I like that comp.
1: I like it quite a bit. He's that athletic. And he, I actually think DJ Davis, I think that stuns me. Is that again? For his, you had to put him in context. High school raw kid from Mississippi. Um, the guys, the scouts in Mississippi swear that DJ Davis' straight line speed is as fast or faster than Billy Hamilton. Wow. I mean, he's fast. And second of all, there's real strength there. I don't think any amateur scouts who saw him in Mississippi would be shocked that he hit for the power that he hit for in the AP League. And in terms of his hitting ability. He wasn't that far removed from a David Dahl, just a lot less polished. Mm -hmm. And then David Dahl had kind of a disastrous first pro season in the Rockies organization. D.J. Davis is a little bit more raw, but he's kind of caught up to David Dahl Mm -hmm. already. So those two guys are going to be linked in my head. I just remember talking to scouts who saw them play together on a travel ball team in the fall that played junior college teams and just raked against older pitching when those were rising high school seniors. So I'm going to keep my eye on D.J. Davis, kind of a personal favorite. I really like them quite a bit. Um, and then the Pioneer League, you've done the Pioneer League too, uh, you know, Matt. The, these two leagues are so different from each other. And then the Pioneer League, they're both rookie advanced, but they are more teams that have their college players go to the ap- to the Pioneer League than go to the, the Appy League.
2: Yeah, I always think of the Pioneers just as an extension of the Northwest League. Yeah. I think of it as just a short-season league for college players. Pretty much. That's essentially how they treat it, you know, because a lot of these teams don't – or a lot of these teams don't have a new uh, Northwest League team.
1: Or they have an Arizona League team, and they have this as well. But there are several teams, I think, in the, the Appy League. It seems like everybody has a GCL team, and then they have an Appy League team. Yes. And then, but in the Pioneer League, you have the Rockies, who don't have an Arizona League team.
2: Or the White Sox. Don't and the
1: White Sox don't. So you have these two teams. And the Rockies
2: and the Diamondbacks only added one recently.
1: Right. and the, And the thing is... I think that's been a as a consequence of that, that you've had the Rockies and the White Sox both be number one. They draft heavily for college players mm-hmm. because they don't have a great development. You have to be a really polished high school guy for them to develop you, and they've had pretty iffy history with developing high school players, especially pitchers. I mean, Tyler Matzek and Peter Tago are, are two very prominent, expensive examples. Whereas Nolan Arenado is a high school player they developed, but before that, you know, Ian Stewart probably they probably didn't get what they Chris thought they were going to get. Yeah, exactly. I think they struggle to develop high school hitters, and I wonder if their structure is part of that. Hmm. Um, it's just a theory. I haven't really talked to Bill Schmidt about that, or or Guyvo, Bill Guyvet, or those guys. But um, but the, you know, but their Latin program has not been affected by that at all. And once again, there are intriguing Latin American Rockies on this list, starting with Emerson Lake Palmer and Jimenez, their shortstop. Uh, and I just love the write-up of the like, way they were like. He was going to be in, in, in uh, he was going to be in the Dominican Summer League, and they decided, you know what, he's better than anybody else we have. They didn't draft somebody who they could send to Grand Junction, so they sent him to Grand Junction, and he he was quite good there. So, um, kind of happenstance really that really sped his development up.
2: Yeah, and, and Tapia too, Rami yeah. Ramel Rame, 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 Tapia, you know, a couple years in the DSL. This was his big coming up party this year.
1: I, I completely skipped over him. His <laughs> his report was
2: really intriguing. Yeah, like in a league, if, if there weren't any first rounders. Like Hunter Dozier and Phil Irvin, like yep. first round college guys, who would've been number one. And I think I don't think we would've batted it tonight. I agree.
1: And, and Hunter Dozier and Philip Irvin didn't just weren't just high school or college draft p- picks from the first round. They were both guys who went there and they just tore that league up. Mm-hmm. And Hunter Dozier is kind of a fascinating one. We used to I think make fun of the Mets when they would uh, send guys back to Staten Island or to Brooklyn. I'm Brooklyn. sorry, yeah. they would have a guy in Savannah and then they send him back to Brooklyn so they could win the New York Penn League title. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, that's something to brag about. But the, the Royals did that with Hunter Dozier, Yep. and he was in Idaho Falls. They promoted him to Lexington in the South Atlantic League and then sent him back to Idaho Falls for the end of the regular season in the Pioneer League in the playoffs.
2: You're a chucker now.
1: Part of it, exactly. Part of it was the chucker season goes longer, yes. so he got a few more ABs. I think part of it was to win the po- the, uh, the the playoffs, and they did. It worked. Didn't they win that the league playoff? I think they did. Pretty sure they did. Yeah, they did.
2: Uh, the Royals had two league champs, one of them up below 500.
1: So th- th- that's right, Omaha. So that really, so that, that, you know, I don't think it colored, but he dominated that league. He led the league in doubles. He hit, and there's always going to be pretty decent expectations on the guy who went eighth overall and wasn't projected to go that high. I kind of like Philip Irvin. I've always liked Philip Irvin. I liked them in high school. He uh, was a deep, kind of a deep cut Alabama prep kid who was a uh, pitcher a- as much as he was a hitter in high school, but. So I like Philip Irvin. I, I think he could play. There's a chance this guy could be a center fielder, a chance he could be a right fielder. Um, I think he's athletic. He's an athletic right-right college outfielder, and not a lot of those guys. It's one of my <laughs> <laughs> favorite bailiwicks. So <laughs> so I'm and excited for Philip Irvin.
2: And he gets full credit for playing in the Pioneer League. Billings right. is the only pitcher's park in the league.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and, and I wonder if that is a factor in Ben Lively's really good start. Because Ben Lively, J.J. and I have already talked about Ben Lively. Now, I used the word that scouts used in writing up Ben Lively for the draft this year, which was vanilla. And Clint, when he was associate scouting this spring, uh, came up with, uh, it wasn't his term, but a scout that he was talking to about Ben Lively used this phrase that I've never heard with another player, ear flipper arm action. What that means is he released the ball kind of with his arm almost cocked close to his ear huh. and the scout used that as a pejorative term. It was not a positive thing to have ear flipper arm action. And, uh, Ben Lively tore this league up and was the best pitcher in the league, I think by far. A- and JJ points out the Reds have had very good success with some college pitchers who've moved quickly that weren't even first round picks. And the mm-hmm. two most obvious examples are Tony Singrani and there's somebody I'm blanking on. Uh, but like last year they had success with Dan, uh, no, the guy out of uh, Memphis, not like Dan Langfield, got hurt this year. Had a great debut last year. And there was somebody else that JJ pointed out it was a college draft pick. But even like a guy like Sam LeCure was like a fifth, right. eighth round pick. That's Something what like I was that. thinking of. Uh, another guy where they got gotten quite a bit of value out of him. So and that's so I think JJ's got a point there. I'm not as excited about Ben Lively as they are. And then the guy that I was excited about in this draft in this league were two random outfielders, Jacob Scavuzzo, and then uh, Adam Engel. I like Adam mingle, So a lot of guys from my draft list, uh, my draft coverage area, uh, were in this league. Guys like uh, Cody Reed, Zane Evans. I think I wrote both those guys up in draft tracker this year. And then a- Adam Mingle was on the
2: outskirts of my coverage area. So talk to so some scouts about him. Are we going to tease any of the high, uh, advanced leagues? I want
1: to tease the leagues that you and I are writing up. Okay. Um, you wrote up the Southern League Southern for the first league. time. And I will spare everybody my... Uh, Neil Young impersonation. And I did the Florida State League. I'm not sure if it's the first time I've done the Florida State League. It's certainly the first time since J.J. Cooper worked here. <laughs> J.J.'s had a stranglehold on I the know, NFL, so I couldn't believe it. But this year we made J.J. have double duty, uh, Midwest League and the Valley League. And part of that was preparation for uh, the handbook because that's all 30 organizations have a team in those two leagues. So J.J. has a, a good working base of all 30 teams from, from doing that. Uh, and second of all, they're, they're comparable leagues. He'd, you know, he'd gone to see a lot of South Atlanta league stuff here. He knows a lot of scouts in this area who do South, South league coverage. And then we sent him to the Midwest league for the Byron Buxton story. He made a lot of contacts there, so he was able to do the Midwest league and the South league. And, um, so that worked out well. But uh, Southern league, we Matt, the Southern league and the FSL. I don't think we knew this at the time, but we gave ourselves the most loaded <laughs> leagues this year in assigning leagues.
2: Yeah, how much do we want to spoil?
1: I don't mind spoiling, uh, like, the number one. We can just talk about the names, but, I mean, I think people do know. When you look at these two leagues, the fact that one of them had a possible Major League Rookie of the Year and the other one had our Minor League Player of the Year, I think yeah. it's kind of obvious who the number ones are. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, the Southern League, I mean, when you did prep for that, uh, were you, did you realize that you were doing the prep for before you even made any phone calls how loaded the league was?
2: Yeah, uh, because you could see that most of these guys, more than half the guys in the top ten are in the big leagues already. Right. And this was before September call-up time, um, including Yasiel Puig, the the alluded to Rookie of the Year candidate. Yep. Uh, And then
1: half the Jacksonville (laughs) roster. A
2: couple outfielders from Jacksonville. Uh, The the Braves, um, Alex Wood actually qualified for this list. And
1: Alex Wood... That's one of the more surprising seasons in the minor leagues and the major leagues. I mean, you were we wrote about this, I think, in the write-up. So the 2012 draft guys who mm-hmm. contributed to the major leagues. There's Paco Rodriguez, right. Um, who were the other guys? I'm, I'm blanking. Well, Gosman
2: and Waka, right. Both both drafted well ahead of Wood. You know, both yep. got there in yep. the same same eight-day period that Wood did.
1: Pretty sure both those guys were in our top 10 on the BA 500. Uh, if Waka wasn't in the top 10, he was at the very outskirts of it. But Gossman was pushed up. He was stuffed near the very top. So, I mean, but like I like Kyle Zimmer, who got hit around in high A this year, then was better toward the end of that stretch, mm-hmm. and then quite good after promotion to double A. If that guy had, I mean, just think about it. It's not like the Royals couldn't have used Kyle Zimmer right. in the big leagues this year. Right. If he'd been up to it, I think they would have pushed him. Mm-hmm. But Alex Wood proved up to it for a better team. That also needed the starting pitching, especially with the injuries they had, to the Beachy not coming back, Tim Hudson injury, and Alex Wood has responded to the call for the
2: Braves. Absolutely. I mean, he expanded his repertoire this year, you know, he, already, he still has the fastball changeup in that, that right. crazy delivery <laughs> that Patters just can't pick up. <laughs>
1: it, it came up over and over again in draft calls for him last year, and the amazing thing about it was that everybody, would, I think I've said this with JJ on the podcast too, but so I hate to repeat. I don't mean to repeat myself, but I feel like I've said this. But every scout would bang on that delivery, bang on it, and then come back to, he throws a lot of fastball strikes. And we always talk about we want fastball command out of our amateur pitchers. Here's a guy with fastball command. So he's kind of restored my faith in the fastball. You know, And I'll say that, and we were talking about it with some other right-hander, with Waka. Mm-hmm. Maybe, Matt, you don't need that third pitch. You can be a fastball changeup guy. Or a fastball splitter guy, if the fastball velocity and command... If the fastball basically plays... To me, it's almost like it's a sliding scale. But if the fastball really plays to a 70, you, maybe you just don't need that breaking ball.
2: That's going to be one of the most interesting things to watch about Waka and, and, Wood. and, and Gosman. Yeah. And Gosman, too. Because yep. Yep. in the in the Eastern League, he was getting 70 fastball, 70 change, you know? And his strikeout to walk was like 8-1. to 1. Yeah. So, he's... Those two guys are going to be very interesting to watch.
1: And, you know, gosman it's almost like it's an Orioles tradition to break a guy in at the, in the bullpen first. Um, but I certainly don't think they want another – they want Gosman to go the Brian Mattis route. <laughs> you know, they're breaking him in like Earl Weaver way. Um, but, you know, to me, Kevin Gossman has to be a significant part of their future. Um, their starting pitching was kind of iffy at times this year. So oh, yeah. they're looking for Kevin Gosman to be – a frontline guy if they're going to continue to contend just they need
2: they need him and bunny they just need pitchers who can miss bats that's just a rotation full of you know, like three four starter profile guys pretty
1: much i mean like and they put so much pressure on their defense and their defense is really good mm-hmm. but uh they played everybody every day <laughs> this year so um they kind of seem like they wore down their defense a little bit as the year went on um and i had the florida state league and The Florida State League, I don't think I had any future big leaguers who were in the Florida State League. I don't think anybody who started the year in the Florida State League went to the big leagues by the end of the year. Hmm. Not anybody who made my list. But it seems like, Matt, the big talking point that came out of the Florida State League this year was, A, the Daytona Cubs are in the mix for our team of the year. Um, That is an organization. You just had such high-octane offensive players in a league that is not thought of for offensive performance but you had a 19-year-old guy in his first full pro year in Buxton who posts over a 400 on base Mm -hmm. and slugs with some authority there.
2: Yeah, crazy.
1: Just crazy numbers. Then you have Sano and Baez putting up the power numbers that they put up in that league. Gregory Polanco, just a five-tool, I mean, just a unique joker. And uh, I'll save the comp that J.J. has for when J.J.'s in the podcast, but... Threw out a pretty outrageous comp of day on Gregory Polanco. Hmm. have to throw it out to an older scout and see, but I mean, it was a pretty outrageous comp. Then you have Michael Franco, who signs for $3.05 million less than Miguel Sano, mm-hmm. and is basically Sano light. He had a Sano type season, but you know, if Sano's a 70 power, this guy's 60, maybe Sano's an 80 power, but it's 60 power, 60 hit. Um,. and and perfectly fine defensively at third base, according to everybody I talked to. Uh, Put it this way, the the Florida State League hitters were so loaded that Noah Syndergaard, I put it to two pro scouts just last week. uh, Okay, line all these guys up. I'd like to move Syndergaard higher, but I don't see how I can rank him over these other five hitters. Mm -hmm. And they both agreed, yeah, I saw him, I like him, he's the best pitcher in that league, but I don't see how I can put him over him. So uh, a guy like a Nick Kingham, who's pretty good, could not make the Florida State League top ten. Who was the best player on your – did you have somebody in the South, South uh, Southern League, 11 to 20, who in a 9 out of 10 leagues would
2: be in a top ten, but that I league was just too deep? Um, Right outside the ten, I had uh, Eric Johnson of the White <laughs> Sox. Who was in the big leagues. <laughs> he's, he's pretty good. Uh, and Any e Romero, he's, he needs a lot more polish, but he's – I think in a week year, he'd be a top ten guy.
1: And a guy who, when needed, did make a big league start yep. for Tampa in a – pressure situation, and I know he didn't get to the fifth inning, but he pitched pretty well for them.
2: Oh, and Brad Miller, the Mariners starting shortstop. <laughs> I think in most years you take a lefty hitting shortstop and put him in the top ten. I would, and I, and I like Brad Miller. He's just outside. I didn't like
1: him in college. I did not think he would be a guy. He's done nothing but hit as a pro. Mm-hmm. It's just a pr- his career has just been a, a, a huge surprise to me. He was very highly tied out of high school, really struggled in college defensively, and so the fact that he is the col- one of the college shortstops that's made into the major leagues as a shortstop yeah. just stuns me because he was so unreliable in college. I think he had a 27-error season in college.
2: Yeah, and this is a team that has Nick Franklin on the roster. Yeah. Until recently, Brendan Ryan on the roster.
1: Exactly. A franchise that has put a pretty big premium on defense at shortstop. So, um, yeah, he that there's, there's Eric Johnson and Brad Mill, and Marcus Simeon was in your 11-20. Yeah. You had real depth. The White Sox farm system... Pretty fascinating year, really, Matt. And That Birmingham team, they won the Southern League. They won the championship without Simeon and Johnson. Yep. Were there other prospects
2: on that team, or was it? Was, was those, were those the top two guys, really? They moved up uh, the reliever, Daniel Webb, and the catcher, Miguel Gonzalez, at the end of the year. Daniel those those Webb's guys are more like complementary pieces. Daniel
1: Webb's fascinating. The uh, draft Knicks might remember that Daniel Webb was one of the top high school pitching guys in, what, 2008 draft, I think it was? And put out a pretty big number, slumped toward the end of the draft, fell to the 12th round, turned down a decent amount of money, went to Northwest Florida State, which used to be Okaloosa Walton Junior College. <laughs> but then they renamed them all the, all the junior colleges in Florida. Okaloosa Walton is such a cooler That's name awesome than Dave, Northwest yeah. Florida State. They he, Chipola, right? Chipola is still there, alias Chipotle Junior College. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, But Chipola is still Chipola. It's all the state schools. I think Chipola might be private junior okay. college. But Manatee used to be Manatee. Now it's State College of Florida.
2: So, well, yeah. This, the story of the of the playoff run for Birmingham was uh, second baseman Micah Johnson. That's right. Your uh, stolen base king this year with 84, mostly in low A. Just had a scout this week tell me that Micah Johnson
1: is a beast. He said, I don't know where he's going to play.
2: Yeah. I put that guy in as a regular.
1: White Sox could feel the whole
2: team of second basemen between him and uh, Simeon. If uh, Simeon plays play second have another guy I can't think of right now. Oh, Carlos Sanchez. Carlos that's Sanchez, kind of a shortstop, yeah.
1: you do have You look at that. those three guys, if you get two big league regular infielders out of that, I think you'd be pretty happy if you're the White Sox. And I think that's reasonable. All those guys have had success. At some measure of success at AA. Mm-hmm. Small sample size for J- Michael Johnson, but mm-hmm. uh, he had a pretty good year overall. So uh, Pretty intriguing, uh, and I guess it's a good thing for the White Sox. The timing of that is good. They've been very competitive in the major leagues until the last year and a half. But they bottomed out this year. You would hope, if you're a good guys fan, that they bottomed out. Um, but there is help on the way in their farm system. I, I think their scouting department and farm system has always been kind of knocked. And I don't know if we're the ones who always knocked it, but we always did say they don't spend money in the draft. And they didn't. But the last two years, the CBA rules being rules Jerry Reinsdorf could live with,
2: they've spent the draft and they're already having pretty quick returns from it. And nobody gets college pitchers to the majors quicker and, and as, as more effective. Than the I, Sox do. I agree, and Eric
1: Johnson is the latest. Uh, yeah. The latest in that in that mix, um, we've got a couple Twitter questions I wanted to get to that related to things we've already talked to. But I keep on uh, on my I don't know why I keep navigating away from this on my iPad. But I like this question from longtime fan and Giants fan Roger Munter, fan of the podcast. Roger asked, "What organization had the most prospects in the league rankings? Uh, and if you weighted league values, how would that change the view of the best?" And we don't have that answer right now, Roger, but. We're going to, because of that suggestion, we're going to make sure we get that answer. And I think we are going to weigh that, Matt. I think that's a great idea. Even if we don't present it, um, it's actually going to be pretty helpful to do that and to weigh that just for organization Mm -hmm. ranking purposes, don't you think? I think so, yeah. We were talking about, like, how you would kind of try to weigh a system like that. Because, you know, like we just talked about in these lower-level systems, how really big of a deal is it if a team loads up on prospects in the Pioneer League, which was a weak league. Yeah, weak league with eight teams you know you it, could it you th- could weigh it by those guys are
2: four years away from the majors
1: you could you could weigh it by level of play and then you could probably add a weight for okay five star league four star league three <laughs> star league that's true um we probably could weigh it that way that's true uh, well, well, I, a I second did, layer yeah so that made me want to actually talk about our league rankings cuz we did rank the league so we already gave one part away now we had three five-star leagues this year. We 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 did two of them: the Southern League and the Florida State League. And then we gave was it the IL five stars? No, no.
2: It, it, was the, uh,
1: uh, it was the Midwest league. Midwest League. Yep. And that was one that we debated. The Midwest League was the one that we debated the most. I think the thing is that I thought for a 16-team league, the depth should be better. Mm-hmm. But I think you you your argument won the day. This league uh, had star power. Uh, that was very hard for other leagues to match.
2: It was, a, I think, it was a pretty much an unsurpassed top eight, really. Yeah. If you wanted to, to dream on all the guys, I mean, I'll give away number eight was Max Freed. Yeah, I mean, this guy could be like Clayton Kershaw Light, and he, he's number eight.
1: And he, I mean, like, he's on the very, very short list of best left-handed pitchers in the minor leagues. Um, I mean think the Padres actually have a pretty decent track record of developing pitchers. I like Max Fried quite a bit, and if that's your number eight guy, exactly. And then you had the top two picks from the 2012 draft in that league. Potential perennial All-Stars. You had a loaded prospect team with, with the Astros team there in uh, Quad Cities. So uh, and you had so many high school picks from the 2012 draft go to the 2013 yep. Midwest League, and a lot of those guys were single-digit picks. So that league list was pretty loaded. And I, I think you you really, when you, JJ, and I discussed it, uh, it really that, that star power really did shine out. The PCL had star power, Matt. Yeah, pretty good, especially with the I uh, um, this is this is uh this top ten for the Pacific Coast League was pretty loaded. Yep. And yet we gave it a three stars and I guess part of it is league context. When you have guys like Oscar Tavares and Jerkson and Profar, those guys both had pretty muted seasons for the hype that they entered the year with. And that affected that league's ranking this year, at least for us and how
2: good of a league we thought it was. Yeah, I agree. Uh, You know, you get bigger contributions in the big leagues. You'd feel more confident about them. Um, But beyond them, it was mostly pitchers who weren't necessarily number one profiles. And I think that, to me, you know, really muted, like to use your phrase, muted the impact.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the the guys in this league who were there, I I think that's a good year for the PTO, and then I think it dropped off pretty precipitously after the top ten as well. Mm -hmm. That was another issue for me was, again, it's a big league a 16-team league, yep. so you kind of hold it to a little bit of a higher standard. Um, that's fair. Th- th- at least I do. Another Twitter question that we had came from uh, Jerry McDonald, who asked, uh, how much can young pit- hitters improve contact ability while a high strikeout guy always be a high strikeout guy? Well, without you know taking a lot of time to research that question, Jerry, um, I can tell you that, to me, that's a f- real factor when you're ranking prospects at these lower levels. At least you're asking managers and and scouts about as many guys as you can. But that's one of the things that scouts are looking for at these lower levels, Matt, is contact rate. They're looking to see guys who made contact at a pretty decent level. At the same time, they're also looking for power. I would say if you're looking at stats and rookie levels for hitters, probably the most important things you're looking at are contact rate and power because you want to see somebody who can impact the baseball. Even a guy like Ahmed Rosario where you're having to project a lot. That's one thing that he did show a little bit was I think his isolated power is around 150. So you're talking about a guy who, even as a shortstop and as a 17-year-old, showed some ability to drive the baseball.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, one of the classic examples I, of a player who did improve to me is uh, Mike Stanton, now Giancarlo Stanton. Yep, yep. He's a guy who struck out like essentially a third of the time.
1: How about that strikeout rate in uh, in uh, that 2007? That's, that's just for nine games in Greensboro. <laughs> That's oh no, that's a short season. That's crazy. 43%.
2: But by the time he got the double A, he was near 20. Right. One out of every five.
1: And the walk rate was almost the same. Yeah. And then the ISO was
2: 400. <laughs> <laughs> Which is and then in the majors, he's he's been pretty good, about what you'd expect, I guess. And, uh,
1: and I, I would say that, again, he showed that early ability that when he made contact, the impact was yeah. ridiculous. And I, I think I've told this story on the podcast before, too. I blame Badler, but my <laughs> 2010, the 2010 handbook. So the 2009, after the 2009 season, um, I think Strasburg and Hayward were number one and number two on all of our personal top 50s. I didn't know who I was going to put number three, and my first instinct was Giancarlo Stanton, Mike Stanton at the time, and Badler talked me out of it because he had this giant spreadsheet about guys who struck out 28% of their bats, and in and, and low A. And that evidence was you had to be pretty extraordinary as an athlete to overcome that. The guys who'd done that were like Vlad Guerrero and maybe one or two other guys. And the rest of that list were, was littered with the Russell Branyons and a lot of 4A-type players who struck out that much. So I do think contact rate can improve because one of the things is at low A, the pitchers have less ability to throw strikes. Mm-hmm. So they're wilder. Um, So, for, like, for a team, and then then you have the example of this year's Hickory team, Matt, which, you know, is one of the more fascinating development stories. They don't, they didn't want their hitters to shorten up with two strikes. They basically told them, don't, learn your swing. And I wonder how much that has to do with the fact that Tim Papura is being reassigned (laughs) as farm director in the Rangers organization. Because one thing, is, you look at that team, those really toolsy players at low-class A Hickory, there was a lot of improvement as the year went on in terms of their contact rate. So I think that's an extreme example. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be the most fascinating group of guys to watch. That was by far the most interesting team in the minor league this year, at least for me. So um, I do think contact rate can improve because I think that pitchers throw more strikes as you go up. And a raw hitter especially can improve his pitch recognition. Uh, and that the better your pitch recognition is, the less inclined you are to chase. But um, obviously the pitching gets better at higher levels. I it think it's more difficult to recognize that pitch. More often than not, the pitchers are either you know, breaking balls coming out of the same arm slot and the same release point as their fastball is. So, I it think it's harder. But that, that's the whole point of getting those necessary at bats. I don't know where you fall on that question, Matt. Do you think it feels though like that? I think it's I think you can improve your contact rate, but usually a guy like John Carlos Stanton, who's if you're striking, I see you struck out 28% as a high in the minor leagues. Know, is there a cutoff rate for you? A cutoff line that is where the red flags really go up for you with
2: contact rate? Do they have to start with a three for you? <laughs> well, the, you keep the major league rate like 21 between 21 and 22. So if you're if you're like above a quarter in the minors, yeah, the chances I mean, just with general, you know, the general increase in level of play, right? It's it's an uphill climb. You generally like to see them start low, so it has room to grow into. Right, to, be, to get closer to the major league average.
1: comes back to our minor league player of the year discussion, yeah. you know, George Springer. Uh, he doesn't, he's already starting off way behind the major league average. Like you said, he's at 28%, 29%. Right. And there was an improvement, and it really makes you doubt the hit tool. I mean, there's no other way to put it.
2: Yeah, that's probably the best way to think about it, is it diminishes the player's ability to hit for average, not necessarily deliver on his power potential, except for the fact that it's fewer balls in play. Right. I mean, you can't. You don't have to put the ball in play. You can't hit a home run.
1: No, yeah, that's also correct. That's a simple way to put it. Um, anything else? I think I'm. I I'm, mean, I may be talked out. I can't believe I'm talking. You don't out. want to
2: circle back to the Pioneer League? Just kidding.
1: No, the Pioneer League is uh, <laughs> is not where I want to circle back to. I I I think I was least interested in that league uh, than I've been in, in a league in a while. And uh, the other fascinating part of that actually was striker training. I, I will mention. Always a concern when you have a guy in his first full pro season and you're talking about weight issues and conditioning.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, he hit in that league, but in, his, in high school, he was a plus athlete, and some scouts who really liked the bat were like, you know, the bat might be good enough that you might just go ahead and move him to the outfield because catching's going to be an issue, but he's an average runner and you don't want him to slow down. Maybe you just put him in corner outfield and make him a right-field profile guy. And now the reports are, boy, this guy's big. He's going to have to watch it to make sure he can still catch.
2: He's the Matt Hobgood of catchers.
1: Ooh, I hope not. I hope not. So, yeah, a lot of these guys, again, from my draft area the last couple of years, Ben Lively, Zach Bird, uh, Stiker, Stryker Trahan, and, uh, like I said, Zane Evans and Cody Reed. So, And Adam Engel, my pick to click. I think he's on the bet board between me and Jim Callis. Of, uh, he was not a believer in Adam Engel. I'm a believer, and if that guy – uh, they said like they changed the swing with the White Sox. I, he didn't. He thought I wouldn't take the bait. I did circle back around to the Pioneer League. <laughs> I like Adam Engel. I like Adam Engel. And if he, and, and if he hits, if he hits 260, he's gonna be a big leaguer. I don't know if he's gonna be Derek Robinson <laughs>
2: or uh, <laughs> Gerard have, Dyson.
1: Yeah, he might just be. A, and he's right-handed. He's a right-right Roger, center fielder. Rajai Davis. He could be right. That's a great comp. That's a cross-racial comp, and it's a great comp. Speed guy, surprising power. Field of hits, Iffy. Righty hitter. Yeah, I had a good comp, man. I like that Roger Davis comp, so.